Chapter 10 of The Lust of Hate by Guy Newell Boothby. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 10 I Tell My Story. Six months had elapsed since I had left Cape Town, and on looking back on them now, I have to confess that they constituted the happiest period of my life up to that time. I had an excellent appointment an interesting if not all-absorbing occupation comfortable quarters and the most agreeable of companions any man could desire to be associated with i was as far removed from civilization as the most misanthropic of men living by civilized employment could hope to get our nearest town if by such a name a few scattered huts could be dignified was nearly fifty miles distant our mails only reached us once a week and our stores once every three months. As I had never left the mine for half a day during the whole of the time I'd been on it, I had seen no strange faces, and by reason of the distance and the unsettled nature of the country, scarcely half a dozen men had seen mine. The pride of the South, as the mine had been somewhat grandiloquently christened by its discoverer, was proving a better property than had even been expected and to my astonishment, for I had made haste to purchase shares in it, my luck had turned, and I found myself standing in an excellent chance of becoming a rich man. One thing surprised me more and more every day, and that was my freedom from arrest. How it had come about that I was permitted to remain at large so long, I could not understand. When I had first come up to Rhodesia, I had found a danger in everything about me, in the rustling of the coarse belt grass at night, the sighing of the wind through the trees, and even the shadows of the mine buildings and machinery. But when week after week, and a month after month went by, and still no notice was taken of me by the police, my fears began to abate, until, at the time of which I am about to speak, I hardly thought of the matter at all. When I did, I hastened to put it away from me, in much the same way as I would have done with the remembrance of some unpleasant dream of the previous week. One consolation, almost cruel in its uncertainty, was always with me. If suspicion had not so far fallen on me in England, it would be unlikely, I argued, ever to do so. And in the joy of this thought, I began to dream dreams of the happiness that might possibly be mine in the future. Was it to be wondered at, therefore, that my work was pleasant to me, and that the wording of Mr. Maybourne's letters of praise seemed sweeter in my ears than the strains of the loveliest music could have been. It was evident that my star was in the ascendant, but though I could not guess it then, my troubles were by no means over, and as I was soon to find out, I was on the edge of the bitterest period of my life. Almost on the day that celebrated my seventh month in Mr. Maybord's employ, I received a letter from him, announcing his intention of starting for Rhodesia in a week's time, and stating that while in our neighbourhood he would embrace the opportunity of visiting the pride of the south and in the postscript he informed me that his daughter had decided to accompany him and for this reason he would be glad if i would do my best to make my quarters as comfortable as possible in preparation for her he himself he continued was far too old a traveller to be worth considering i was standing at the engine room door talking to one of the men when the storekeeper brought me my mail after i had read my chief's letter i felt a thrill go through me I could hardly have diagnosed for pleasure or pain. It felt difficult to believe that in a few weeks' time I should see Agnes again, be able to look into her face 
and hear the gentle accents of her voice. The portrait she had given me of herself I carried continually about with me, and as a proof of the inspection it received, I may say that it was already beginning to show decided signs of wear. Mr. Maybourne had done well in asking me to see her comfort. I told myself I would begin my preparations at once, and it should go hard with me if she were not pleased with my arrangements when she arrived. While I was mentally running my eye over what I should do, McKinnon, my big Scotch overseer, came up from the shaft's mouth to where I stood and reported that some timbering which I had been hurrying for was ready for inspection. After we had visited it and I had signified my approval, I informed of our employer's contemplated visit and wound up by saying that his daughter would accompany him. He shook his head solemnly when he heard this. A foolish thing, he said in his slow, matter-of-fact way. A very foolish thing. This country is near fit for a lady at present, as Mr. Maybourne kens well enough. What's more, there'll be trouble among the boys before very long. He'd best be out of it. My dear fellow, I said a little testily, I fear, for I did not care to hear him throw cold water upon Mr. Maybourne's visit in this fashion. You're always thinking the natives are going to give trouble, but you must confess that what you prophesy never comes off. He shook his head more sagely than before. You can say what you please, he said. I'm nae setting up for a prophet, but I canna help you but see what's plain before my eyes. As the proverb says, forewarned is forearmed. There's been trouble and discontent all through this countryside for months past, and if Mr. Maybourne brings his daughter up here, well, he'll have to run the risk of mischief happening to the lass. It's no business of mine, however, as the proverb says, let the willful gang their own gate. Accustomed as he was to look on the gloomy side of things, I could not but remember that he had been in the country a longer time than I had, and he had also had a better experience of the treacherous Matabele than I could boast. In your opinion, then, I said, I had better endeavour to dissuade Mr. Maybourne from coming up. But nay, nay, I'm saying that's all. Let him come by all means, since he's set on it, but I'm not going to say I think he's wise in bringing the girl. With this ambiguous answer, I had to be content. I must confess, however, that I went back to the house feeling a little uneasy in my mind. Ought I to write and warn Mr. Maybourne, or should I leave the matter to chance? As I did not intend to send off my mail until the following day, I determined to sleep on it. In the morning, I discovered that my fears had entirely vanished. The boys we employed were going about their duties in much the same manner as usual, and the half-dozen natives who had come in during the course of the day in the hope of obtaining employment seemed so peaceably inclined that I felt compelled to dismiss McKinnon's suspicions from my mind as groundless and determined on no account to alarm my friends in such a needlessly silly fashion. How well I remember Mr. and Miss Maybourne's arrival. It was on a Wednesday, exactly three weeks after my conversation with McKinnon, just recorded, that a boy appeared with a note from the old gentleman to me. It was written from the township, and stated they had got so far and would be with me during the afternoon. From that time forward I was in a fever of impatience. Over and over again I examined my preparations with a critical eye, discussed the meals with a cook to make sure he had not forgotten a single particular, drilled my servants in their duties till I had brought them to as near perfection as it was possible for me to get them, and in one way or another fussed about generally until it was time for my guests to arrive. I had fitted up my own bedroom for Miss Maybourne and made it as comfortable as the limited means at my disposal would allow. 
her father would occupy the overseer's room that individual sharing a tent with me at the back the sun was just sinking into his rest below the horizon when i espied a cloud of dust on the western veldt little by little it grew larger until we could distinctly make out a buggy drawn by a pair of horses it was travelling at a high rate of speed and before many minutes were over would be with us as i watched it my heart began to beat so tumultuously that it seemed as if those around me could not fail to hear it in the vehicle now approaching was the woman i loved the woman who i had made up my mind i should never see again five minutes later the horses had pulled up opposite my veranda i had shaken hands with my guests and was assisting agnes to alight never before had i seen her look so lovely she seemed quite to have recovered from the horrors of the shipwreck and looked even stronger than when i had first seen her on the deck of the fiji princess the day we had left southampton she greeted me with a fine show of cordiality but under it was easy to see that she was as nervous as myself having handed the horses and buggy over to a couple of my boys i led my guests into the house i had prepared for them evidently they had come with the intention of being pleased for they expressed themselves as surprised and delighted with every arrangement i had made for their comfort it was a merry party i can assure you that sat down to the evening meal that night so merry indeed that under the influence of agnes's manner even mckinnon forgot himself and ceased to prophesy ruin and desolation when the meal was finished we adjourned to the veranda and lit our pipes the evening was delightfully cool after the heat of the day and overhead the stars twinkled in the firmament of heaven like countless lamps lighting up the sombre veldt until we could see the shadowy outline of trees miles away the evening breeze rustled the long grass and across the square the figure of our cook could just be seen outlined against the ruddy glow of the fire in the hut behind him how happy i was i must leave you to guess from where i sat i could catch glimpses of my darling's face and see the gleam of her rings as her hand rested on the arm of her chair the memory of the awful time we had spent together on the island and in the open boat came back to me with a feeling that was half pleasure half pain when i realised that i was entertaining them in my abode in rhodesia it seemed scarcely possible that we could be the same people towards the end of the evening mr mayborne made an excuse and went into the house leaving us together mckinnon had long since departed when we were alone agnes leant a little forward in her chair and said are you pleased to see me gilbert more pleased than i can tell you i answered truthfully but you must not ask me if i think you were wise to come i can see that you think i was not she continued but how little you understand my motives i could not thinking that perhaps she had said too much she checked herself suddenly and for a little while did not speak again when she did it was only about the loneliness of my life in the mine and such trivial matters illogical as men are though i had hoped for both our sakes that she would not venture again on such delicate ground as we had traversed before we said good-bye i could not help a little sensation of disappointment when she acted up to my advice i was still more piqued when a little later she stated that she felt tired and holding out her hand bade me good-night and went to her room here i can only give utterance to a remark which i am told is old as the hills and that is how little we men understand the opposite sex from that night forward for the first three or four days of her visit agnes's manner towards me was as friendly as of old but i noticed that she made but small difference 
between her treatment of mckinnon and the way in which she behaved towards myself this was more than i could bear and in consequence my own behaviour towards the change i found myself bringing every bit of ingenuity i possessed to bear on an attempt to win her back to the old state but it was in vain whenever i found an opportunity and hinted at my love for her she invariably changed the conversation into such a channel that all my intentions were frustrated in consequence i exerted myself the more to please until my passion must have been plain to everyone about the place prudence honour everything that separated me from her was likely to be thrown to the winds my infatuation for agnes maybourne had grown to such a pitch that without her i felt that i could not go on living one day a little more than a week after their arrival it was my good fortune to accompany her on a riding excursion to a waterfall in the hills distant some seven or eight miles from the mine on the way she rallied me playful in what she called my unusual quietness this was more than i could stand and i determined as soon as i could find a convenient opportunity to test my fate and have it settled for good and for all on reaching our destination we tied our horses by their reins to a tree at the foot of the hill and climbed up to the falls where we had ridden over to explore after the first impression created by the wild grandeur of the scene had passed i endeavoured to make the opportunity i wanted how strangely little circumstances recall the past what place does that remind you of i asked pointing to the rocky hill on the other side of the fall on a good many she answered a little artfully i'm afraid i can't say that it reminds me of one more than another all things considered there's a great sameness in south african scenery cleverly as she attempted to turn my question off i was not to be balked so easily though the likeness has evidently not impressed you reminds me very much of salvage island i said drawing a step closer to her side halfway up that hill one might expect to find the plateau and the cave oh, why do you speak to me of that awful cave she said with a shudder though i try to forget it it always gives me a nightmare i'm sorry i recalled it to your memory then i answered i think in spite of the way you have behaved towards me lately agnes you're aware that i would not give you a pain for anything you do know that as i put this question to her i looked into her face she dropped her eyes and whispered yes emboldened by my success i resolved to push my fate still further agnes i said i've been thinking over what i'm going to say to you now for some days past and i believe that i am doing right i want to tell you the story of my life and then ask you a question that will decide the happiness of the rest of it i want you to listen and when you've done answer me from the bottom of your heart whatever you say i will abide by she looked up at me with a startled expression on her face i will listen she said but whatever question you ask i will answer but think first gilbert do you really wish me to know your secret god knows i have as good reasons for wishing you to know as any man could have i answered i can trust you as i can trust no one else in the world if you wish to hear and judge me whatever you say i will do and abide by it she put a little hand in mine and having done so seated herself on a boulder then after a little pause she bade me tell her all in the first place i said i must make a confession that may surprise you my name is not rexford as i have so long led you to suppose it is pennethorne my father was sir anthony pennethorne of polton penner in cornwell i was educated at eton and oxford 
and as you will now see i got no good from either after a college scrape the blame for which was thrown upon me my father turned me out of england with a portion of my inheritance i went to australia where i tried my hand at all sorts of employment gold mining among the number details of my life out there with one exception would not interest you the results of which were taking me out of england when i first met you up to this time ill luck had constantly pursued me and i had even known the direst poverty you may imagine therefore what my feelings were when an old friend a man with whom i had been a partner on many goldfields told me of a place which he had discovered where he said there were prospects of sufficient gold to make us both millionaires he poor fellow was dying at the time but he left his secret to me bidding me take immediate advantage of it true to my promise i intended to set off to the place he had found as soon as he was buried and having discovered it to apply to government for the right to mine there but fate was against me and i was taken seriously ill for weeks i hovered between life and death when i recovered i saddled my horse and dreaming of all i was going to accomplish with my wealth when i had obtained it made my way across country by the chart he had given me when i arrived at the spot it was only to learn that my greatest enemy in the world a man who hated me as much as i did him had filched my secret from me in my delirium and had appropriated the mine you cannot imagine my disappointment i wanted money so badly and i had counted so much on obtaining this that i had almost come to believe myself possessed of it what need to tell the rest he became enormously rich and returned to england in the meantime my father had died leaving me a sufficient sum when carefully invested to just keep me alive with this to help me i followed my enemy home resolved if ever a chance arose to revenge myself upon him when i arrived i saw his name everywhere i found his wealth his generosity his success in life extolled in every paper i picked up while i from whom he had stolen that which gave him his power had barely sufficient to keep me out of the workhouse you must understand that i had been seriously ill for the second time just before i left australia and perhaps for this reason but more so i believe on account of the great disappointment to which i had been subjected i began to brood over my wrongs by day and night and pine for revenge i could not eat or sleep for it remember i do not say this in any way to excuse myself but simply to show you that my mind was undoubtedly not quite itself at the time at any rate to such a pitch of hatred did i at length work myself that it was as much as i could do to prevent myself from laying violent hands upon my enemy when i saw him in the public streets after i had been entertaining the devil in this fashion for longer than was good for me he in return sent one of his satellites to complete my ruin that man such a man as you could not picture to yourself put before me a scheme for getting even with my enemy so devilish that at first i could hardly believe he was in earnest so insidiously did he tempt me playing upon my hatred and increasing my desire for revenge that at last i fell into his net as completely as he could wish the means were immediately found for getting my victim into my clutches and then nothing remained but to work out the hideous crime that had been planned for me i stopped for a moment and looked at agnes who was cowering with her face in her hands she did not speak so i continued my gruesome tale i need not tell you how i got the man in my power nor in what manner it was arranged that i should kill him 
I will content myself with telling you that when I had got him, and could have killed him by lifting my little finger, difficult as you may find it to believe, I saw your face before me, imploring me to repent. There and then I determined to throw off my disguise, to let him know who I was and what I intended to do with him. After that I would have bidden him go and left him to his own conscience. But to my horror, when I got down from my box while I was driving him in a cab, I found that in some devilish fashion my work had been anticipated for me. The man was dead, killed by the same fatal agency that had been given me to do the deed. Try for one moment to imagine my position. In one instant I stood in that quiet London street stamped with a brand of cane. Never again could I be like my fellow men. Henceforth I must know myself for what I was, a murderer, whose proper end should be the gallows. In an agony of terror I got rid of the body, left it in the street in fact, and fled for my very life. While the town was still abed and asleep, I tramped my way into the country and at a suburban station caught the earliest train to Southampton. On arrival there I booked my passage in the Fiji Princess for South Africa and went on board. The rest you know. Now, Agnes, you have heard my wretched story, and you can see for yourself why I was so desirous of getting out of civilization as quickly as possible. You can judge for yourself whether I was right or wrong in refusing to allow you to say you love me. God knows you cannot judge me more harshly than I judge myself. She looked up at me with terror-stricken eyes. But you did not mean to kill the man, she cried. You repented. You said so just now yourself. If it had not been for me, the man would not have died, I answered. No, no, Agnes, you cannot make me out innocent of his death, however hard you try. A look of fresh life darted into her face. It was as if she had been struck by a brilliant idea that might mean my salvation. How do you know that you killed the man, she asked. Are you quite certain that he was dead when you looked at him? quite certain i answered i examined him most carefully besides that i have made inquiries since and elicited the fact that he's never been seen or heard of since that awful night there have been many advertisements in the papers offering rewards for any information concerning him she did not reply to this only sat and rocked herself to and fro and her face once more covered in her hands i knelt beside her but i did not dare for very shame to attempt to comfort her Agnes, I said, speak to me, if it only be to say how much you loathe me. Your silence cuts me to the heart. Speak to me, tell me my fate, advise me as to what I shall do. I swear by God that whatever you tell me that I will do without questioning or comment. Still she did not answer. When I saw this I rose to my feet, and in my agony must have turned a little from her. This action evidently decided her, for she sprang up from the boulder on which she had hitherto been sitting, and with a choking cry fell into my arms and sobbed upon my shoulder. Gilbert, she moaned, come what may I believe in you. Nothing shall ever convince me that you would have killed the man who so cruelly wronged you. You hated him, you longed to be revenged on him, but you never would have murdered him when it came to the point. In answer, I drew her closer to me. Agnes, my good angel, I said, what can I save to you for the comfort you give me? You put fresh life into me. If only you believe in me, what do I care for the world? Heaven knows I did not mean to kill the man. But still, the fact remains that he is dead, and through my agency. Though morally I am innocent, the law would certainly hold me guilty. You do not mean to say that the police will take you, she cried, starting away from me with a gesture of horror. 
If I am suspected, there can be no doubt that they will do so. How it happens that I have not been arrested ere this, I cannot imagine. But, Gilbert, you must not let them find you. You must go away. You must hide yourself. It will be of no use. They'd only find me sooner or later, wherever I went. Oh, what can you do then? Come what may, I shall not let you be taken. No, God, I could not bear that. She glanced wildly around as if she fancied the minions of the law might already be on my track. So I endeavoured to soothe her, but in vain. She was thoroughly frightened, and nothing I could say or do would convince her that I was not in immediate danger. At last, to try and bring her to a reasonable frame of mind, I adopted other tactics. But Agnes, we are missing one point that is of vital importance, I said. Knowing what I am henceforward, everything must be over between us. No, no, she cried with a sudden change of front. On the other hand, you have shown me that there is more reason than ever that I should love you. You are in danger, and this is the time for me to prove what my affection is worth. Do you value my love so lightly that you deem it only fit for fair weather? When the world is against you, you can see who are your friends. God bless you, darling, I said, kissing her sweet upturned face. You know that there is no one in the world so much to me as you, and for that very reason I cannot consent to link your fate with such a terrible one as mine. Gilbert, she said, if you repulse me now, you will make me miserable for life. Or why must I plead so hard with you? Cannot you see that I am in earnest when I say I wish to share your danger with you? I was silent for a few moments. In what way could I make her see how base a thing it would be on my part to pull her down into the maelstrom of misery that might any day draw me to my doom? At last an idea occurred to me. Agnes, I said, will you agree to a compromise? Will you promise me to take a year to think it over? If at the end of that time I'm still at liberty, I will go to your father, tell him my story, as I have today told it to you. And if he will still have anything to do with me, ask him for your hand. By that time I shall probably know my fate. You will be able to see things more clearly, and I shall not feel that I have taken advantage of your love and sympathy. But I want to be with you and help you now. Believe me, you can help me best by agreeing to my proposal. Will you make me happy by consenting to what I wish? If it will please you, I will do so, she said softly. God bless you, dear, I answered. And thus the matter was concluded. End of chapter 10